Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you choose is suitable for the audience at home. Do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today is ready to face the long knives in the fort below. Welcome, Robert Shearman. How are you Hello. doing, mate? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here to discuss, frankly, my uh, childhood traumas. <laughs> hopefully yeah. sort of bring some sort of recovery from them so yeah thank you yeah yeah i think there's going to be a, a bit of that in there it's inevitable yeah. really i mean this yeah we'll, we'll get to the film shortly but um yes yes as ever with these podcasts we tend to a lot of the times we we revisit childhood trauma <laughs> yeah um, well there's nothing quite as frightening is there as, as the thing which got under your skin when you were of of the right age you know I mean, I mean i can watch horror now and i can admire it and i can be disturbed by it and it can be quite an intellectual process but the things actually which really really upset you and sort of define your understanding of what creeps you out for the rest of your life is often determined when you can't really do that and that's yeah i mean childhood horror is for me still the thing which I tap into and which actually really upsets me at times so yeah yeah and yeah the, and uh you know to paraphrase a uh, spinal tap the the <laughs> there is yeah. no more grim <laughs> it is a grim film yeah um so <laughs> uh yeah so Robert, so uh, um, have, you, have you been busy of late what you've been up to um I have been actually uh I've been working on I'm the script consultant for a new television series which is launching on Apple in a few weeks. And we've spent the last few years developing it and then going through the scripts. It was, it was a sort of pre-pandemic thing that uh, a really good friend of mine who was also a Doctor Who writer, a chap called Peter Harness, uh, devised. And he sort of spent the last few years chatting to me about it. I mean, he, he is the writer. Uh, in, in all ways, but I would go back and forth because he lives in Sweden and we go and chat about it. And then during, after the pandemic, it got picked up by Apple. So we've spent the last couple of years developing it. So it's, I mean, it's now being filmed. I mean, series one is ready to to drop. It stars Numi Rapace and uh, Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. And I saw it recently, you know, with all these special effects and things. It's a sort of science fiction stroke folk horror mashup really and i think it's really really good and i'm very very proud of it and we're so I'm, I'm excited by that that's going to drop in i think drop is the technical term for what they do on these streaming platforms because i'm so old and crusty now i never quite understand it but yeah i, th I think i think we drop at the end of april uh, at the end of february rather and uh yeah very excited by that so we've been working quite hard on that and the potential development of future seasons is what we're doing at the moment so well, well, yeah. you, you, you said the two kind of magic words there, really. I think science fiction and folk horror. I mean, it's uh, yeah. it, it's always a winning combo. I think you know. Um, can Can you tell us what it's called again? It's called Constellation. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's. I mean, it, it it sort of sets itself out at the beginning as being, you know, quite spacey. It's it begins being set on NASA, uh, not not on NASA, on the, on the ISS rather. And there's a disaster in space, which you can tell from the trailer. And it does end up going back to, to Earth. And, the, and we, we filmed quite a lot in remote areas of Sweden, which is where Peter lives. And that all over, to be honest. But it, it, it's that strange mix, I think, which is actually quite sciencey, quite technological with, um, with ghost horror, doppelganger, terror stuff going on i mean i think i think it's quite a frightening show um I'm, I'm waiting to see what people make of it i mean i'm i'm i think it's unlike anything else out there at the moment so i'm i'm hoping it finds its audience 
Yeah, I mean, it can't, I mean, what you're saying now, I mean, obviously I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I think, you know, the idea of, like say, the kind of science fiction e elements with the sort of ghost type horror. I mean, one of my favourites is is the stone tape, and I think, you know, that combines mm. things really, really well, I think. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, I mean, I, you, you know, you've written for the theatre, you've written sort of books yeah. and you've written uh, obviously scripts and, and but obviously I, I, I imagine most people will, will know you through your work with Doctor Who, whether that be yes. sort of big finish productions or um, writing for the, the actual TV show when it came back. Um, yeah. and, and obviously, you know, in terms of the big finish stuff, I mean, you know, some of those the most popular sort of uh that that kind of fans really really gravitate towards are the chimes of midnight uh and then but obviously you wrote jubilee as well which yeah, that's right. kind yeah. of became a version I yeah mean, but, but it was a funny thing i mean i mean i was so lucky because i i was on big finish back 20 odd years ago i mean when it all kicked off so i so in a funny way i mean i mean there's so much to finish out and it's so good, but there's also so much of it. I think it's hard for people sometimes to actually find individual stories. Whereas when I was doing it, which was right at the start, there was pretty much one story a month. And because there was no TV show and there was no prospect of a TV show at that point, you sort of felt for one month that you were the king of Doctor Who, you know, that, that, that yours was the latest story and all the fans who who bought the CDs would listen to it and, and you felt strangely important. And it was, it was, it was really exciting. And Jubilee was one of those, I, 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 it was funny. I was working on a TV show called Born and Bred, which was uh, the first show run by Chris Chibnall, who went on of course to, to be the showrunner of Doctor Who with the Jodie Whittaker's uh, series in the last few years. And uh, it's a, Born of Bread was a terribly nice show. And they gave me permission to spend two, three weeks away from it to write this incredibly unpleasant um, Doctor Who script uh, about this single Dalek. And um, I just got out all of my venom that I wasn't allowed to put into the BBC show and just had people mutilated it. And again, partly because, you know, it wasn't for children. I mean, Doctor Who at that point was now the province of 30-something fanboys um, who didn't want, want to grow up. And therefore, you didn't have to worry about just how bluntly unpleasant the satire was or how extreme the violence was. And so, I, I, mean, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I think I'd be horrified now if Doctor Who in any way... <laughs> Did, did the sort of things I was doing on those big Finnish audios, but it was it was great. It was it, it was a wonderful way of sort of just letting rip and writing some really interesting horror um, in in the audio format. Because I was doing so much for BBC Radio Four at the time, and that was mostly comedy. Because my background is comedy, and Doctor Who allowed me out of the idea of just doing something that was reassuringly comic. And I could be hopefully quite horrifically comic instead, which, which, which was great fun. But yeah, but, but it meant that Russell T. Davis heard Jubilee and um, picked up the phone and having not met me, bless him, I mean, very brave of him actually, just summoned me to a meeting and said, we'd like you to write episode six of the new series. So uh, yeah, it was the easiest job offer I've ever had. It was done without any interviews. Just, I was suddenly found I was on Doctor Who, you know, for Chris Eccleston. Well, I'm, very, I'm very pleased because I, I mean, and I'm, I'm not just saying this because you're here. I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but that that episode, Dalek, that is my favourite episode of Doctor Who ever. It's just, it, oh wow! I think, I think it just. Um, oh, thank you. It, 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 I, I don't. It's just. I think it. You know. I think it's. It. It's really. Um, I'm not quite entirely sure how you did it because it, it, I, I think, you know, if you think about where the Daleks were previous to this, obviously Doctor Who had come back, but obviously yeah. when Doctor Who, I mean, the Daleks had kind of, they'd lost their way, I think. Uh, there were a few odd episodes that were, were okay. You know, the I think the remembrance of the Daleks was okay, but, you know, they kind of lost their power. I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I think Remembrance, which was the last Dalek story before my one, 
17 years or, or so later. I think he's terrific. I think, you know, I think Ben Aronovich, of course, has gone on to Rivers of London series. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's quite a big name now. Um, I think he's a, a remarkable bit of TV, actually. Um, but it was that funny thing that, you know, over the time that Doctor Who was cancelled, the only way that Daleks seemed to have survived in popular culture was to be mocked. I mean, you'd had all those Kit Kat ads, you know, the, the peace or love stuff. And then you had them appearing on Victor Lewis Smith, um, the, uh, the rather filthy Daleks. And it was just a joke. And I remember that when I got that call to do the Dalek story um, and I told my wife, because I wasn't allowed to tell anybody, but I could at least tell my wife. Um, her reaction was just to be, just to say, oh, that's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> I said, why? She's, she's not a Doctor Who fan. I mean, she is the best friend of Katie Manning um, and has been, you know, the house I live in was bought by my wife and Katie back in the 70s. So Doctor has always been a very, very big part of her life, but she's never actually really loved it as a show. So she just said, well, the Daleks are basically just shit, aren't they? And I said, are they? She said, yeah. I mean, that's just going to be embarrassing. She said, are they still going to be that sort of pepper pot thing with the, with the egg whisk and the sink puncher? I said, well, I hope so, yes. And she said, oh, that's not going to work. So I made her write down um, about five or six reasons that she thought that the, the Daleks were rubbish. And then I proceeded to try and deliberately counter them all in the script. And one of them would be things like, like that sink plunger. So I gave the sink plunger a definite, you know, it's a very, very violent death, which they cut back on for the transmission, but it's still pretty unpleasant. And the fact that they had no conversation, the obvious couldn't go upstairs, which in fact, of course, the show had done, but people didn't remember. The fact they couldn't turn in corridors, I mean, all those things were, you know, and basically just because my wife said, well, this is the problem with the porn. I tried one by one to make those things be answered so that, that but when they came back on screen, people wouldn't be disappointed. I think it's that awful thing as well that I spent the whole time I was on Doctor Who. It was about a year that I was, you know, it was back from 2003 that we got the call. Um, terrified, actually, that, when they came back, that the eight-year-olds that we were now trying to catch as our as our audience would have no reason to just be impressed by Daleks because we told them they were part of the old history. I remember going to the, the first read-through, um, which was included the two Sabine episodes that went before Dalek, and I was still writing Dalek at that point. And I just, you know, and here were these alien creatures that could fart and <laughs> take on other people's bodies and, and were actually quite funny. And I thought there's no reason why the kids won't prefer the sort of eat. And, you know, next week we'll put on this big pepper pot and they'll be bored by it. So I, I tried very, very hard to, to try and make it so that if the Daleks did fail, um, then at least they went out with some sort of bang. You know, unfortunately, people, you know, I mean, what was exciting was seeing just how much people responded to Daleks again. There was that sort of Dalek mania again. I mean, I, mean, I would go out and I would see children in playgrounds doing Daleks. I, I, I'd go, I, I spoke to a lot of schools having done my Doctor Who and kids were really excited by Daleks. And there's something so magical. It's just a matter of treating them seriously, I think. Yeah, it's a class classic design. It's a brilliant design. Oh God, yeah, yeah. And 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 there was that concern at the very beginning. I think that I don't know for sure because I wasn't privy to those discussions. But I got the impression that there were questions being asked at the beginning. Well, do we redesign them? And Russell T. Davis, you know, um, obviously massive fan as well, was adamant that we kept the Daleks as Daleks. I mean, there's no, there's no point. I mean, I think all the time that the show was off the air and there were these attempts to bring it back and there were American chats about films and whatever, and you would end up with these designs being put around for non-existent projects with spider Daleks and basically just totally redesigning them and making them no longer Daleks because we were embarrassed by them. And 
I think that was the basic key to why Doctor Who, when it came back, why it, why it was a success, is that we refused to be embarrassed by it. We, we didn't try to correct the things that we felt people were going to be ashamed of. I think Russell, I think Russell's great genius was actually understanding that what we had was already very, very good. Whereas everything I'd ever seen being discussed about the show in the, in the years of the wilderness, which is what we call it, seemed to be about people trying to make it less embarrassing, trying to correct it, trying to make it so that critics of the show couldn't get at it before it went wrong. And I think it's such a great show. I mean, it's it's one of those things that even the year that we were on it with, with Chris Eccleston, there were things that that we were wary of. You know, we, we didn't want to give him, Chris, uh, a particularly uh, eccentric costume. But within a year or two, you're, you're, you're back to that model again. I mean, it's, it's weird how however much you try and sort of shore up Doctor Who and make it so that it's a bit more sensible. Within a year or two, it just reverts to type. It, it is that crazy show because it's about a guy in a police box or a woman in a police box or whoever. I mean, it is it is nonsense and it's a terribly silly show. And I think that it always finds... That it sort of, you know, you, you can bend it out of shape, but it always pops back into being that essentially crazy Doctor Who shape that it needs to be in. Um, so, Robert, when, so uh, how, what was your entry point into horror then? Well, I, it's, it's a bad thing to admit because I feel a bit of a fraud being here. I mean, I mean, I spent, I mean, I spent so much of my time now with horror, but when I spent most of my formative years trying to avoid it because I was, <laughs> really really terrified of it in every form I mean it was and yet there was a fascination I, I remember that when I was a kid um watching over and over again every week on top of the pops uh the the, uh, the buggle song video killed the radio star because I wanted to find out how the radio star died because I wanted to see it even though I was horrified by that I remember there was a there was a boy at school called Richard Riddell who in our metalwork class once told me the entire plot of Omen 2. And I was, you know, gripped by hearing about all those deaths. But, you know, so I was, there was a fascination. But when he lent me the video cassette of it, I couldn't watch the death. So what I did was I put the video machine on. And as soon as that bloody crow appears and, and, and then things got ominous, I would fast forward five minutes. And so... For years, I never, I, I, I only had the imagination of the deaths. Um, I didn't watch Doctor Who when I was a kid because the title sequence scared me too much. I, I just found the idea of horror. Um, I, I still do a bit, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very squeamish, and I, 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 I make things worse than they are. I, I, I imagine them as worse than they are. So, um, I. I tend to look away and I tend to, every time that a friend of mine does something in horror, I have to ask them. I mean, Sean had, Sean Hogan had his new film recently and I went to see it, but I had to, I, I had to beg him and then beg other friends who'd seen it, um, advance information about how disturbing it was because I didn't want to sit in the cinema. It's easier for me to sit at home because I can then look away or passport or something but if I'm trapped in an actual cinema I, I can't watch horror films in cinemas very easily um, I just get scared which is ridiculous so um, my my formative thing was as I say basically just being very very frightened um, it was often through reading I was quite scared of Roald Dahl um, in fact the film we're going to discuss is very very much like of course Charlie and the Chocolate Factory um, which I, the Willy Wonka from the Chocolate Factory, the Gene Wilder film, absolutely terrified me when I was a child. Reading the sequel, The Great Glass Elevator, is still one of the scariest times I've ever had as a kid because I think that is a far, far more aggressively horrific book than anything else Roald Dahl ever wrote. And I was gripped by it, but also genuinely terrified. I, I remember buying because I still I had the fascination for it but couldn't quite stomach it I remember getting as a, as a birthday present one of the Peter Haining 
um, true life horror stuff. There was there was the restless bones and other true mysteries, and the front cover of that, which is of a Roman legionary holding a a pylon spear, but his skull is four times the size of the rest of his body. It's just a weird image. So frightened me. I mean, I bought the book with my birthday money and then would go and find it in the night and scream. And then my parents had to take to hiding the book because I was so frightened by the book cover. And then I would get up in the night and try and find it again because I still wanted to find it. And it would just, you know, a few years ago, I was staying with Mark Morris, the horror writer, um, as I do when I go and see him. And I found it in his in his toilet on the bookshelves there. It was about three in the morning. And I put it off the shelves thinking, oh, this will be interesting. And it was still really, really frightening. And I nearly dropped it in the uh, in the toilet bowl, that whole Amada book. I, I, I found the dissonance of certain imagery really, really scary. And... Uh, it wasn't so much gore. It's, I mean, it still isn't for me, really. It's it's just things being a bit off, and I make them worse and worse in my head. So, yeah. Well, those, that, I mean, those Peter Haining books, I mean, uh, you know, all the people have bought this up as well. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got a few of those now. Uh, mm. But I remember years ago when i was like 16 17, i just started seeing the first proper girlfriend, you know, you're madly in love and all that. Yeah. Uh, but then my dad and my stepmom, they wanted to go on holiday and they didn't trust me to leave me at home on my own. So they, they dragged me off to, they went, it was like Greece. I sound really ungrateful, but you know, when you, no, no, sure. you, you, you want, I wanted to be with my girlfriend. So it was like two Absolutely. weeks away in Greece and it was red art and I was kind of bored because I, and, but I, the thing that saved me was I found in one of these little kind of seaside shops they had, I found it sold like English books, found a P Peter Haining book. And it was right. on the on the front cover, there was a still from Freaks. Uh, and the book was just basically all the kind of short stories that a lot of these films have been based yeah. on. So I've got the Ted, the Todd Robbins story spurs and all that kind of stuff and the fly and all that. So I just kind of like, I, 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 I caned that book in a, in a, in a week or so, but yeah, yeah. That, yeah really fond memories of those Peter Haining books. Well, there was those, I mean, I, I remember going, there was a, I used to go to Crawley, um, which you, people won't know, but it's, not very far from Gatwick Airport, which is where I was brought up, and we would go into the WH Smith there, and there was a whole section of what were probably very, very tame books. I mean, they were quite near the Doctor Who target novelizations, but they were just weirdly nasty covers of anthology horror stories. I mean, the, the pan stuff. I mean, it was those covers which mm. would be genuine and disturbing because they weren't necessarily bloody. They were just off. There was something wrong about them, and it was that wrongness that that, that used to get to me. And the, you know, and so I, I remember, you know, not making it about Doctor Who, but I remember very specifically when I was about ten or eleven, which is very old to do it, daring myself finally to read a Doctor Who book, and choosing the one with I thought the shittest cover because <laughs> I thought it was impossible that that this one could be scary. It was. For Doctor Who fans out there, it was Image of the Fendar, which is oh, yeah. dreadful. Um, and it's actually a really quite tense, scary horror story. I didn't understand a word of it, because I, I still don't really understand Image of the Fendar. But it was something that I remember reading it and actually expecting to be bitten by it. You know, I, 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 I found that sort of idea of opening up a book and letting the horrors come out um, genuinely could keep me up all night. I mean, I. I, I, I was plagued by the idea of regular nightmares and just images from my childhood where I would catch things like bits of ghost stories for, for, for uh, Christmas things. Um, I mean, the idea that I'd watch them for pleasure was a million miles away from me. And yet I would, I would still try and find things. It was, as I say, it was like trying to find Video Killed the Radio Star. It was, it was wanting to dare myself to confront something that actually I was very, very, very dreadfully scared of. Well, 
Um, yeah. Speaking of wrongness and, and all that yes. kind of stuff, uh, yeah, I think it's about time we uh, introduce the film we're going to be looking at today. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the film um, that you've chosen, Robert, uh, <laughs> it's, it's slightly different for us because obviously we we normally do feature films. Uh, but this is a slightly different thing. This is this film's only half an hour long, and yeah. it is a public information film directed by John McKenzie of Long Good Friday fame, and it is called Apaches. Yeah, come on, let's have a drink. Hey, I'm not drinking that. You don't know what it is. Well, just mime it, like we did in the school play. It might be poison. Yeah, to kill the rat. No, it isn't poison. It would look like it. Me kill many warriors. <coughs> oh, it's horrible. What is Sharon's got all of my jacket? You all right, Sharon? Yeah, I think so. When was the first time you came across this film? I was at primary school, um, which is where they showed it. Because I, I mean, it, it's in, it sounds ridiculous. I, I, I went to the village primary school in a village called Smallfield. It sounds a bit Ben Wheatley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, there was no way that he was genuinely called Smallfield as a village. But nevertheless, that's that's where I grew up, and um, there were lots of farms nearby. I mean, I mean, that's pretty much what we were. We were, you know, sort of yokels, really. Um, <clears throat> And and yet also next door to my house, there was a motorway running, which I used to play on. I, 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 I will be honest. I mean, there was a, a, a gap in the sound barrier between the, the, there was a, there was our house. There was a sort of slight balancing pond and there was a sound barrier and then there was the motorway. And I used to go out on the hard shoulder because there was a gap in there. And, and it's that sort of thing. Now you look back and you say, well, that would be the opening to one of these public information films. I used to walk on there quite often. Eventually, I, the uh, police were called and I was told to stop. Um, but I was quite a young kid. But yeah, but, 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 but in Smallfield, what they would do is that, I mean, I had quite a nice time at that primary school from my memory, but they would periodically get in people to scare us. I remember that they got in a train driver once to tell us, give us a sort of talk about how many children he'd, he'd run over with his train. And there was this one day when they brought in what I now know to be Apaches. And, I, and it was the fact that you couldn't avoid it. I mean, it was half an hour, but you weren't allowed not to watch it. It was like, obviously, that bit in Clockwork Orange where you're effectively forced to watch it, even though you're screaming not to. And you watched this sequence in which five children out of six, a group of six, just die horribly. And I remember weeping with fear during it. I just wanted it to be over. And for years afterwards, I never really knew what it was. I mean, when, and there wasn't the internet back then. I remember asking people about it and no one knew what I was talking about because I wasn't explaining it very well. When they brought out the Charlie Says videotape, I bought it thinking it was probably a 30 second ad that I'd caught. But my, my main memory was a child drowning literally in shit because he falls into <laughs> the sorry and that i remember really really particularly freaking me and so i kept on thinking that all those deaths were probably individual um warning films about playing on phones and i you know I, I watched all of charlie says and loved it and because i was you know because because they're great to watch those things but, it, but there was no trace of it and i just thought well maybe i'd imagined it i mean could i have imagined it then some years ago, quite a long time ago now, I suppose, soon after YouTube was created, I found it on YouTube just one night. I was up about two, three in the morning. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. I, I think this is it. And I watched it. And I was totally freaked by it again, even though I was now in my late 30s. Um, because it's, it's a really horrible film. It's a really nasty piece of work. And I only watched it again um, the other night with my wife. Uh, I asked if we could give it a go. And she said, and, and, she's, and she really loves horror. And, it, it's, and I'm the one who still wants to be 
you know, giving lots of trigger warnings about things. And we watched it and we saw, and she held my hand during it because I was, I was, I knew I was doing this, this, this podcast with you. I thought I must watch it again, but I didn't want to confront it. And it's, I mean, it, it's an interesting piece of work. It's, um, it's, it's obviously about trying to terrify children away from doing things which is going to get them killed. Um, but in the process, I think it genuinely set up for me a series of uh, fears that I constantly try and play out in my own fiction now. I think partly because it's no one seems to care. So you have these five. I mean, I mean, this is the, the lack of logic of the film. There are these six kids who play cowboys and Indians on this farm, and then it seems that every day one of them dies horribly, and then they go back the next day and do it again, and and they don't care. I mean, the uh, the kids don't care. The 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 uh, non-speaking farmer doesn't care. And in fact, continues if he appears in long shot to be quite amused by the fact that the children are still there and even fires imaginary guns at them. And indeed, in the final section, when there's only two kids left, actually allows one of the kids to get into a tractor, which is a drive to his death over a cliff. I mean, it's the fact actually that there was this sort of strange dispassion towards it, I think, which really upset me, that you would have these tremendously unpleasant deaths and then it would just be like a reset the next day they'd be back playing Indians again and there'd be barely any mention made I mean there's this quite amusing bit when at one point watching the film back one of the kids makes mention of how many there are and he gets the number wrong and, and, he, and he gets corrected he says oh there are five of us and they say no it's four he goes oh yeah cool and that's the only reference there ever is that any of their friends have just died horribly it's it, it's it's such a strangely sociopathic film i, re I reckon the um the i mean the other kind of memorable public information film obviously is is the dark and lonely water yeah, uh, yeah, yeah i reckon yeah. so obviously you've got the figure of death in that but i reckon if you if you pull if you get that figure and you pull his cloak off and his hood i reckon the farmer <laughs> underneath there because like you say he doesn't give a fuck does he it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, these kids are playing no, and, I mean, and, you know, oh, one's just got crushed, one's drowned. I remember, <laughs> I mean, Dark and Lonely Water is is great and, you know, Donald Pleasance's voice is mm. great, but actually it, it's still kind of a reassuring little one minute thing, which is basically, oh, sensible children. Oh, I have no power over these. There are no sensible children in in, in Apaches and there's no sense at all of, of, of any way in which you can beat this you're going to go on that farm and the farm is effectively freddy Krueger. it's going to kill these kids one by one and no one ever tells the farm off for it and it's um that that's i think i mean there are a number of films like it i mean and i checked them out i mean that they weren't part of my childhood but but, but there's the uh, finishing line which is the film where children play sports day upon railway tracks and get killed in various ways one by one effectively as well and there's a very very odd film as well called um building sites bite <laughs> in which a, in which a single child keeps on magically being reincarnated to die in a, yet another way on a building site which is uh doesn't quite work but is suitably macabre but it, it's apaches which is the one which is the nastiest, mostly because of because of that tone. It, it's it's as you say, it's made by John McKenzie, who went on a few years later to do The Long Good Friday, and it's it's actually genuinely really good tense film, as opposed to being as the other two are somewhat um, quite nasty curios, which are designed to be that don't actually feel feel particularly filmic in many ways. They and, and they aren't acted very well by the kids and there's lots of really bad improv from the kids apaches feels fundamentally like this is a condensed feature and it feels like it's it's it, it's it's a horror movie in embryo
Okay, so I, I think there's a few things to pick up there from what you're saying. Because, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the, the bizarre thing is, is that, you know, it, you've got something. I mean, I, I, I didn't see this till later on, but I, I don't remember seeing this at school. But I certainly, you know, similarly, um, we were certainly wheeled into the assembly. I remember when I was... 13 possibly 14 i think it might be right. to watch threads you know oh and my I, I god think, you saw threads yeah this i mean this is the thing i think it's the where yeah this was the, the the bizarre thing at the time so you've got all this furor about the sort of video nasty era and all these kind of films mm. and all these kind of american or sometimes italian features that we were being told we couldn't see and they were far too damaging and yeah none of them you know, this film knocks all of those into a cocked hat for disturb. You know, and and threads as well. You know, and I just thought, yeah. hang on, you're you're trying to actively dissuade parents from letting kids watch these films that are fairly innocuous and are fantasy. You know, they are complete fantasy. Um, and yeah, we're being wheeled into an assembly to watch this. Well, this is it. I mean, you know, I think there's a world of difference between saying to somebody, "Here is a." self-contained fiction here are some characters and they live within their lives and here is a plot and it's beginning and it has an end and a film like threads which is basically saying to to children and to anybody watching it this is the threat that we are currently facing we could all die in a nuclear war or a public information film which of course is that, that's the intention it isn't saying here are some interesting characters who are going you're going to you know, engage with, it is saying the here are a, a, a series of warnings for you, which you are meant to take and bleed out into your everyday existence. Whereas a general horror film, you know, if you go and watch, I don't know, um, the Amityville Horror as a, as a film that was around when I was uh, a kid, I mean, that's a haunted house film. You go in there and you experience that sort of thrill ride and then they come out at the end and you leave the cinema. The idea of actually something which is deliberately putting a warning inside people's heads about the dangers of what is actually out there waiting for them is a completely different matter. And that's why Apaches, I think, got so much under my skin. Um, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I, I sort of hate the grizzly, but what interests me is that watching it back, Although there are two of the deaths which have blood in them. I mean, there's the, the, the kid whose head gets run over by a tractor. And there's the one who has a gate on him. And then there's that lingering shot as the blood trickles down out of his ear. That isn't what I remember. I mean, the things which I remember from it are the, the screams of terror outside a, a house while you hear a child die poisoning calling for her mother and which is terrible and partly actually because that actress is really good I mean she's really good in that film um, and the other one of course just being the the death in sorry because it's so macabre it's not blood it's someone flapping about and going under and all those bubbles coming up through the shit that's actually what really sticks inside your head in the same way that I think that when I was at around the same sort of time, as a fairly fat kid, being totally terrified by Augustus Gloop getting stuck up the tube <laughs> in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, because it was a weird, colourful, extraordinary death. And as kids, we all knew that no matter the fact at the very end of Willy Wonka, you get to see all the kids are actually, I mean, they're all physically altered, but they are alive. We know substantially because kids are more intelligent than adults we don't we we know when something's been put in deliberately to be a sop but we know in our hearts in Willy Wonka um that those children die because that's the point but but I'll, t I'll take drowning in uh, the best chocolate in the world over how shit any day I think well yeah yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I mean I mean that's what's so awful about it is that I mean again I, I think one of the things which lingered for again, it sounds such a silly thing to say, is that you can't imagine, how do they get the kid out? I mean, that's what's awful. This child just drowns in this sea of shit. 
And then just the mechanics of that is horrible. Whereas at least when a gate falls on you and you're crushed under a gate and there you are with a, you understand what's going to happen there. You're going to be picked up and taken away and your parents will still get you, but your parents aren't going to find you. And it's that sort of awful thing, I think, also that, that, that really ties into child fears. It, it's still the sense that, that, that your parents can't save you. And in fact, your parents can't even find your body. It's going to be truly horrible. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it just sort of played upon every single fear I had at Patches. To me, it's the, it, watching it again, it's, yeah, the deaths are horrific. But other than that, it's just the details that stick in your head. I mean, there's the fact that one of the kids is wearing um, a University of Florida sweatshirt. It's yeah. like, just seems so innocuous, um, but weird. And the, the little bits of dialogue. So obviously there's a script, they follow this story, but you imagine that some of the kids were kind of like, you know, ad-libbing and stuff. Oh, but, 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 but they're discussing swap uh, swap shop and it's yeah. almost deliberately boring because and, and it's and it's it's very very clever because you know you are waiting now to see another child die you know it's happening and it feels like a it, it felt to me actually watching it back it, it reminded me of that awful terror that you had in the dentist waiting room when you were a kid and people would try and talk to you and chat to you about innocuous things to take your mind to the fact about to go and have your teeth drilled and of course that's even more tortuous because you're waiting for this awful thing to happen and it just feels mocking you that your mum is sitting there talking about how it was at school because I mean I was so scared of dentists when I was a kid and and that but that's my but that's the thing which I remember the most I've sort of blocked out the memory of sitting in the dentist chair as much as I have the smell of the waiting room and the waiting for it. And it's the fact that Apaches has that, even though it's only 26 minutes or something, it still puts you through processes where you're waiting for something which you're now dreading. And, and, and it toys with you so cleverly in that sort of horror film director way. You know, there's that bit when I think it's down to the final three children and they're running around and they keep on being presented with possibilities of death. <laughs> and, it isn't, and you think, oh no, it's not gonna be that way. But, but you know it's going to happen. The fact that you know, as it's you know, as the minutes tick down, that you're waiting. And and and, and I remember again as a kid, just wanting it over and done with. I, I sort of felt during those bits where they're just having the improv chat. I just think, oh please, let's just get this over with. If they're going to die, just kill them so I can get out of the out of assembly. But you know, having these protracted discussions about what they would swap on swap shop just makes you want to scream it's awful it's a form of torture i think as well as, as well though like i said if you take away the deaths all right yeah that's what people focus on but if you take away the deaths it still looks like the grimmest yeah <laughs> however yeah. i think you know it's it a real 70s childhood i grew up on a little estate and at the bottom of the estate, there was this woods. And obviously, I used to go there a lot. And then, and, then, and then beyond the woods, there was like a flood dikes. And, you know, I just spent most of my days there, whether it's raining, sunny or whatever, just getting slumped up. And, and it, you, know, you don't think about it then. But looking at this, it's like, yeah, it was just Is this the, I, mean, I mean, I grew up, as I say, I mean, I grew up in this small town called Hawley, which bordered on Smallfield, which is about a mile away from Gatwick Airport. And so my parents would either, when I was a teenager, just drop me off at the airport to go up and down the escalators. <laughs> or I would just go out and play on my chopper bike. And there was, next to my house, you know, with the motorway, there was this balancing pond where there were these huge drains. And we used to, my sister and I used to just go down them. We would just go down these drains in the dark. And it was just drains, it's full of rats. And we'd have to crouch down because they were, you know, because we were we were able to fit down them because we were children. The idea that we were doing that and just showed in some ways that although I was obviously traumatised by Apaches, I wasn't traumatised by the fact that I was doing things. That if you just showed them on TV now and put a, and put a soundtrack on, everybody would be terrified for what's going to happen to these kids. But we came out unscathed, but not every child did come out unscathed. I mean, that's what's so funny about it. 
I mean, growing up in the 70s in this sort of strange, bleak, grey, uh, concrete existence, it's amazing. I mean, I mean again, one of those memories that I have as a child, which, again, freaked me because it just felt so real, was the bit in Grange Hill when a kid falls to his death while he's playing um, in a shopping precinct. You know, he 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 falls off a um, oh, you know a balustrade or something and falls down, and then you just watch him and his dead body is there, and there's probably a trickle of blood. And it's the fact actually that it's just kids mucking about because they're bored. I mean, you know, um, that's what you did. I mean. Watching some of those other films, after watching Apaches, I couldn't resist. I watched the finishing line. And, and it's obvious that the reason why you've got kids attacking fences and getting down onto railways is partly because there's nothing else to do, because they haven't got, haven't got mobile phones to play with. So instead, they're going down there and seeing whether they can avoid being run over by trains. And that's what our childhoods were a bit like. And what I find terrifying about that is, as I say, I mean, I was out there on the hard shoulder of a motorway several times when I was an infant because I just thought, well, I can. Um, and I would have been playing on those parts. One of the things that my wife reacted to very, very badly about the film, she didn't, I mean, she, I think she found the film um, Apache's quite amusing. I mean, she recognised it was quite a grim film. But at the end, it's seeing all those statistics of all the children who died over the last year. And, and she was in denial over it. She said, there's, n there's no way, she said, that many children died in the farm. It would have been seen as, as, a, as a national epidemic. And I did say to her, I don't think it was the same farm, darling. She said, no, 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 I, I know that. I just mean, <laughs> if you're saying that, 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 that in the whole of England, or the whole of the UK, I think it says England, not the thing, yeah. this number of children died in the farm, she said, that would have been a scandal. And I said, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's just simply what we were doing. We were going out there and just getting killed. That's what children did when we were kids. It wasn't unusual to feel, you know, to hear at school, you come back home from the school holidays and find out that another child had got had got killed by a farm <laughs> because that's what seemed to happen. I, I, I mean, can you imagine? And I, I mean, I, I, you know, in this woods I was talking about earlier on, he kind of had an embankment and it went down to these flood dikes. But in, in the certain part of this embankment, there was a huge sycamore tree. And at some point in the past, somebody had carved a big love heart into the side. So we all called it the love tree. Um, yeah. uh, and then the, it had this massive branch overhanging this embankment. So every year, every summer, obviously, somebody would get a, a rope and and sling it over this thing but every year without fail somebody would break their arm and i yeah, remember my, my mate david he broke his arm twice two years on the on the trot and you, <laughs> the year after he was queuing up to have another go it was yeah. just like can you imagine now it'd be like the whole area be cordoned off oh absolutely like, yeah know, yeah Nuclear power, I mean, it, health and safety. It was just, it was a, it, you it's know. It's also a child's attitude towards death. I mean, I think one of my favourite bits of Apaches, watching it back, was the sequence, because it's very funny, genuinely funny, not just macabre funny, is when they're playing cowboys, I think, and they all just shoot each other. And and the girl is left alive, having shot them all, and just realises well, it's a bit boring. So she just fakes her own death as well because she wants to join in. <laughs> and so... And, and, and so although they're all going to genuinely be dead quite soon afterwards, you've got this way in which the children are just enjoying playing death, even though at this stage, I think two or three of their number have died, but they're still actually having fun with the idea that that sort of comic book idea of death. When I was a kid, I mean, I used to go out, um, I mean, I wrote to Jimmy Savile. Fortunately, he didn't respond, but I did write to Jim or fix it. I, I wanted as a kid, to be killed on Doctor Who. I I wanted to be shot by a ray gun. And I, I, I used to practice it in the back garden. I used to run around and then go around a corner and find a monster and a monster would zap me and I'd go, and I'd fall over. I used to love the idea of imagining my body going into 
into um, that sort of um, 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 uh, negative effect that a Dalek would have. I used to love the idea of that. I used to, you know, that's the thing I principally wanted. I didn't want to be on Doctor Who to be a character who survived. I wanted to be on Doctor Who as a character who instantly got killed because death was interesting and funny. Yeah. And that's what I find so weird about Apaches was that, you know, you would have these very, very real moments of death. And then you go back to that childhood love of it, which is so odd. Well, I, I mean, you know, I don't. every era, every generation has their idiosyncrasies and have their, what they love about it, what they hate about it. And, and every generation will see things as being great or whatever. Uh, mm. And so I'm not trying to say growing up in the 70s was better, worse or whatever. It was just the era I happened to particularly grow up in myself. But I did, you know, but there was something <laughs> that that kind of public information film, even though they kind of started in the post-war period and went sort of all the way through, you know, the seventies in particular were kind of mm. um, how, you know, this, the, to, for want of a better phrase, the golden age of kind of public information films, yes, but they were, right. they, but they, you know, it's difficult to describe just, I mean, Apache is, is probably the grimmest, but they were all fairly grim. Uh, yeah. And I think that, that Alice Lowe, who obviously directed Prevenge and his insight series and things like that in Garth Marenga, yeah. she she had a radio series. And one of the characters she had on this radio series was this this ghost child. And this ghost child, this this child was dead because he he kept he kept dying. <laughs> <laughs> we kept getting injured in a public information film style accident. Oh, wow. He'd have like That's a firework chucked in his face or he'd be electrocuted on a pylon or whatever. All of this kind of stuff. Uh, it's a brilliant little character and a brilliant little nod to that that sort of era because that, you know, obviously Scarred for Life, fantastic series of books, volume one and two. Um, yeah. They they cover this quite substantially in terms of growing up in that era, 70s and 80s particular the you know they were out to get us in some way i mean it's brilliant i wouldn't change it i wouldn't have anything different but you know, no, 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 absolutely you know not. but it was just it's difficult to relate just how much adults particularly in the entertainment industry didn't give a monkeys about terrifying us <laughs> it's just just odd yeah i mean i mean as you said I mean, there's children of the stones i remember you know i mean they're just but, I mean, it's one of those things that we found when we were doing Doctor Who. Um, we didn't know what the line to cross was anymore. I mean, I remember that when I was doing my Dalek script, um, there was some concern at the very beginning about whether or not we could even now in that 21st century age for a family show have characters dying. So there was talk initially that maybe the Dalek would only be able to stun people, which would have been awful. I mean, obviously awful. And I, and I, I remember the sort of gleeful email I got from Russell one day saying, oh, it's all right. We're allowed to kill them. Kill as many as you want. <laughs> because, I mean, Russell always believed that the whole point of that show was about death. Doctor Who was always about death. And that children find death interesting. And, and there's nothing actually kind of weaker than the idea of actually I mean whenever I'd go to a school and talk about about trying to construct stories it was always about the macabre deaths that they'd be you know that's what they wanted to create I mean, that's what they wanted in their stories they wanted to design the the, the actual cruelty of the weaponry they wanted something like saying this is great because this gun turns you insides out I mean that's partly because you're also so far away from there's something which is quite colourful about it, but it's it's also I, I don't know it's um it's the sense of humour to it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why. I mean, I, I think I think that the uh, the, the uh, finishing line, which was banned for uh, after they'd shown the, a couple of years after that one went out, they 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 said this is too much. It's because it's actually very very funny. It's I mean I think that children get it. I mean, I remember watching it and it is horrifying. But I mean, just to explain it, for people who don't know it, it's a film in which in which it's very Apache-like in a way, but it's it sets up the idea of a school sports day where you play various games which are 
on a railway line, like dodging trains or throwing rocks at moving trains, or most wonderfully of all, and actually most cinematically of all, uh, in the final bit, everybody having to go on a slow walk through the tunnels, and whoever makes it out alive at the end has won. And it's done with a sort of strange, sort of almost cartoon-like sense of dispassion. It's one of the reasons why I think Apache's works. I think if Apache's had been full of um, people screaming and, and, and grieving what had happened, um, it wouldn't have had, had that same sort of macabre effect. It was, as I say, I mean, one of the things which frightened me about it so much was the sense that you would die and no one would care. And there is that sort of the way that the the, uh, the uh, structure of Apaches is that it is narrated by the the ringleader of the gang, and he is, as it turns out, um, narrating the idea that there is a party which is being done by the adults, and of course that party is his own funeral. But again, it's still the idea of people being terribly button-lipped. There is no sense even in those moments of quite shocking reality after his after his own death it's a great framing device and it, it's it's like you know it's a nice little framing narrative it's like it's very much an amicus type thing and, and it isn't a twist because because of course you get it but actually but it's also at the same time really really neat it's the fact that there's a there's a really lovely bit when after he's fallen to his own death driving a tractor and there's that lovely bit where his dad comes in to see his mum in the bedroom just saying it's time because because all, all the guests have arrived and it's just done so subtly and done with such sadness but again without any great sense of people wailing or beating their chests it's about the fact that the child is now absent at the party means more than that the people are actually now angry and campaigning to get the farm closed down which is what you sort of suspect a 21st century sensibility would be it's the idea actually to be honest that that this foolish child has prevented himself from taking part in um, in a greater adventure of going forward, and that's what's horrifying. You know, it's and 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 that your parents will have a bad day and then they'll move on, which is what's again is 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 is, is, is so upsetting about it that, you, yeah. that even your friends at school stop stop caring. They will take down your. Um, name badge by your clothes peg at, at school and they'll and they'll take out all of your belongings from your school desk and then you, and then they'll get on with their lives and that's that's what death is and that's not very dramatic and not very comical it's just blunt and nasty and you get forgotten and that's what i think apaches does i think it's i mean it's uh yeah it it, 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 it still packs a punch even if now watching it of course and i'm and i'm 53 watching it now i'm not frightened by it anymore because and indeed you can laugh at bits of it because you're waiting for it and of course there's going to be that 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 distance that you get from it but you can still see that it's about children just accidentally dying and not even recognizing how close they are to death all the time and it's yeah I think, like you said, it is this, you know, like if you, it would be if you were to do that, nobody would do this now. But if you were going to do this now, like you said, there'd be that sense of outrage at the end and there'd be, you know, campaign to shut the farm down. And, you know, the the, the farmer would be up on on trial or. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, that farmer is a bastard. Yeah. I mean, it's right from the first death, which is when they um, attack the tractor as a wagon train and one of the kids jumps on board and then falls off and and and, and, and he's firing at he's firing his imaginary gun with a stick at the farmer who's firing back and he's playing along so it, you know he's at least culpable um later on there's a death when they're running around and they're still firing and he still fires at them he's already killed two kids at this point and at the very end um when he get when uh when our hero gets on board the tractor, I think that's the only moment when the farmer has a line, which is, yeah, all right, we'll just, uh, you know, just uh, be a bit careful. And then he walks off. He just allows this kid to be on the tractor, which he's going to 
kill himself on within about 40 seconds. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to overstate it or try try and pretend that it, you know things were like that that they weren't. You know, like try and pretend different things happened that didn't. But I yeah. do, you know, I do think there were. You know, if if a child dies in any era at any time, obviously it's a, a massively horrific thing, and people react to that in different ways. Um, but I I do think there was I I can specifically remember having sort of assemblies where you might have heard of somebody, whether it's in the locality or somebody on the news, a child dying or whatever, and there were a lot of the time. If it was if they died on say a railroad track or something like that, it was it what there was yeah okay it's sad but there was always this underlying thing that they were really stupid as well to be in that yeah, place yeah, at that time fine. there was this kind of thing that they would there was much more onus on you as a kid not to be stupid yeah there was a I mean the thing which I really remember from the train driver who came to see us at primary school. It was a sort of almost sad irritation, he said, that there was, he said, there's nothing sadder than when, than when you're driving a train and then you see a child on a track in front of you and you think, oh, I'm about to, I'm about to run over a child. <laughs> and, and, and he said, and, and that stays with you. And you think, and, and again, what, what, what was shocking about it wasn't that, it, it was the fact that yeah, it stayed with you, but he wasn't traumatized. He still carried on being a train driver, and, and it was—it's possible he didn't—he hadn't really done it, but he gave the impression in the talk that I've run over a dozen kids, really, and 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 and, and, and you never enjoy it. <laughs> you uh, never have a good time doing it. You always feel bad. There's blood on the tracks, and it's very annoying. But then, of course, you know, as, as I say that, I suddenly, you know, recall how I how I always feel when I'm on the London Underground at a station, and then there's an announcement saying, "Uh, trains have been delayed. Someone's thrown themselves onto the tracks." You think, "Oh, you selfish bastard!" <laughs> you don't you don't feel a sense of of of, of of dread mortality you just think oh idiot now i can't get home for an extra 10 minutes which is well, I, you know but I, I mean my, my wife's a counselor so she i know she works with specifically with certain groups but she has you know right. she's done lots of training and and you know and obviously that you know people that have, have gone you know train drivers or whatever have gone through that obviously now sure. they need, you yeah. know, intense amounts of trauma you know therapy and all this kind of stuff but I, I did i remember talking to a guy who used to work in the police and then he started working on the railroads and things like that but he one of his jobs was to kind of clear up after. oh god and, and and i just how do you even carry on i mean you know, I've worked so I yeah, I work for myself now, but I've worked some shit jobs, but Jesus, never nothing compares to that. I mean nothing. No, no, sure. And, and, and but, but that's also the sort of the, I think the strange push pull thing, which again, bring it back to a patch is it does very, very well. You have these moments of shock horror where the kids just stand agape as they as they see a dead body. And then you also have the way in which you quickly adjust to it. I mean, the actual reality of someone dying on an underground track would traumatise all of us and we would feel awful. But when you're further down the line, you just feel irritated. And that's yeah. what's awful about it. It's the way in which, and we do it with people who are um, on the streets and we do it with people who are in foreign wars. You know, you, 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 you kind of find a way of distancing yourself from, from the emotional reality of other people suffering, unless it's right in front of you and that's what's so terrible about about us and and that's also what i think apaches does so well is that you know any realistic attempt to do apaches would would be about the emotional impact of one of those children dying on a farm and yet apaches is actually about five sixths of children returning to the same site every day, it seems, where their friends have just got killed and doing it all over again. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, you know, the, the movie, um, which I only watched today, actually, um, which is Building Sites Bite, doesn't work for me because it almost overplays that. You know, it's a really weird film, actually. It's a film about this, this, this boy who is made by his cousin, 
who's punishing him for his dreams of being an architect to go and play on a building site and then watch him die in, mul in multiple ways. I like to punish him of, of his arrogance for wanting to be an architect one day. And there is no impact at all because you just rewind and do it again. And it becomes this sort of strange, it, it's almost, you know, it's, it's almost too conceptualized. What's amazing about Apaches is it never tries to explain how macabre it is. I mean, it, it never wants to sort of overplay that. You just recognize as you're watching it, this doesn't quite make sense, but it's but it but it's totally horrifying to watch. Finishing line, which I think is a really, really clever film, makes it so obviously satirical. And and it's kind of the sort of wish fulfillment of a child imagining what it would be like if there were a sports day on a on, on a railway line. So you know it's always a fantasy. And therefore you can have these really bizarre images of adults, you know, effectively sending children into a game where they're going to get their, their limbs chopped off. And it's fine because it's, it's just an imaginary thing. Apaches is half imaginary, half not. It sort of has that dreamlike state, which is what I find is so good for nightmarish films. And then it suddenly means it's not, and it goes back into the nightmare. It's, it's a, it, that's what I find a, it's such a queasy watching experience for Apaches, is that you never quite know minute to minute what tone it's going to be adopting next. And that's why you feel kind of seasick watching it. Okay, well, um, I... I think we've worn Apaches out. Probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can, I, I kind of, you know, all the films we look at on uh, T for Terror, I would recommend, obviously. Uh, but I would say, the first time ever, I would say, yeah, uh, show a little bit of caution because it is, it's brilliant uh, and it's, it's definitely worth seeing. It's only going to take up half an hour of your time, but it is very, very grim. It's not for entertainment in the same way, is it? I mean, it, I mean, horror films are great because they offer a release. I mean, they are a cathartic experience. That's that's why we like horror. Apaches is not cathartic. Apaches is is designed to make you feel just sickened. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, same thing as always, really. So remember to follow us on Facebook and all that jazz. And uh, yeah, if you can, if you listen to Tea for Terror, and some people do, uh, I am told, uh, yeah, just leave us a review. That'd be really nice. You can write us a nice review because it helps us with distribution and all that malarkey. Um, it just remains for me to say thank you so much, Robert, for coming on. I know you know it's kind of uh, I know you're busy and everything, but it's uh, it's been brilliant to talk to you. It's been tremendous fun. Thank you so much, Andy. Oh yeah, you're welcome. You're more than welcome. If you have fancy coming on again, then just let me know. I I I, I would love to. Maybe I'll actually pick a, a proper horror film next time. Actually, one which has a a proper plot. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be nice. Oh, so remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You look like you're dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.